of Sight and Insight, the podcast for art lovers. Uh, with me today, we have Lawin Connie Nagel and David P. Curtis, who are back from all their various painting uh, adventures. And uh, we're going to be talking today. We've just been uh, sat on uh, sat on the patio having our coffee, working out what we're going to be uh, bringing to the table today. And this year, this week's theme is ancient aliens. Oh, sorry, no, that was a different conversation. <laughs> we'll get to the ancient aliens another time. Um, no, we're going to be talking about elements of nature, which is a big thing for a, a landscape painter, which Connie and David uh, really enjoy going out to do. And so as I see elements of nature, we're thinking about things like um, earth, wind, fire, which would be a good title for a, a rock group, I think, mm -hmm. and also air. Um, but enough of the hilarity. Let's uh, let's get right down to it. Um, so, as I had no idea how to start this, David thought that he would give me uh, some in-depth information here. And actually, it I thought it was very interesting after I'd read what he wanted me to look at. So, let us begin with uh, going back to the times of Plato, uh, and you can't get any farther back than that, or I suppose you can, but never mind. Um, so Plato's views on art is that art can never truly represent reality. Uh, for life itself, of which art is merely a copy, does not represent reality. So uh, he says, our world as we experience it is an illusion, a collection of mere appearances like reflections in a mirror or shadows on a wall. And what we need to do is to escape from the cave and see the real objects, the forms, and gain true knowledge, which sounds uh, really interesting. So uh, while I'm trying to escape from my cave, I'm going to go straight over to David, who I'm sure has some very interesting information for us as a landscape painter, philosopher, and all-round good guy. So take it away, David. <laughs> well, I've cleaned my cave, so you're welcome to come in. <laughs> it's not as dusty as it once was. Oh, that's a relief. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a tough subject because of what Plato uh, reiterated is that uh, it's an imitation of an imitation. If you were to try to make a copy of nature, uh, if you saw a beautiful mountain and you try to depict that. He would say, no, that doesn't come anywhere near as close to it as the mountain itself. Therefore, the imitation of the imitation is not, not worth it. I think Aristotle's later on, um, during his, his uh, prominence, uh, sort of just softens that blow a little bit and gives the, the human a little more credit that through intelligence, through learning, through constant practice, he probably can create... Um, an illusion or an impression that somebody else could gain uh, an understanding of what he was trying to do with his work and create the effect of nature through that. And I think Aristotle is pointing out more of this idea of, and I think we've gone down this path a lot, of feeling and the difference between uh, just the optics and the science of seeing and painting rendering exactly the way it is um, versus the approach where maybe maybe there should be more of a feeling in this um, in the work, and I think the reason, in my opinion, the reason why the feeling takes second stage to this is because it, it happens rarely, and I think that it's those rare moments, the smile on the Mona Lisa, 
happens rarely in art, and when it does, it's really precious and really special. And I think I think we all acknowledge that when we see a painting that just steps out of itself in, in a sense and, and goes beyond that idea of it's just an imitation of what they had seen and therefore they were rendering it. So uh, I still think that that's still a strong part of the debate here is that if we are trying to communicate, if the feeling is enough to say, if I can make some brush strokes put onto a canvas to make somebody feel like it's a picture of a tree versus taking a photograph and getting it exactly like that individual tree, what's the difference? Well, I would say, too, that uh, you're talking about an imitation of an imitation. Well, that's one way of viewing art. But when you also interject the Mona Lisa and the feeling element and the, the uh, transcendence that you get from, from uh, looking at the Mona Lisa, is uh, you've got a reality in and of itself. So what it is, is it's no longer an imitation of something, but it is, it's in, it, in and of itself, it is a reality. And I think that probably the way I would argue about uh, elements of nature is that the painting itself becomes an element of nature and that it is also living, breathing form. And it only becomes that when we're able to, to interject all these dimensions that we're just now talking about, interjecting this feeling nature, this, um, this three-dimensionality on a, on a rectangular surface, the color, the form, the value, all help to model and shape and give life, let's say, to a composition. So I think that, um, in truth, the, um, we're getting an element of, of nature because we are, we are nature's elements. As, as artists, we're, we're nature's elements, and we're, we're trying to render something, but we're not trying to render it uh, per se. Um, at least that's the way, and that's my take on it. Yeah. Well, I, I think the problem with uh, painting anything, if we're taking nature's elements and we're talking about uh, the obvious elements, earth versus, say, sky, um, I, I think that that's an important part to separate the two and to make ideas about the two that is totally, you know, totally different from each other. Just one. So I think it because it sets the other off. Right. Uh, as you, uh, if you have a big, beautiful sky in your painting, and you want to show it off, you probably need a very simple landscape to show off the sky, and vice versa, uh, if it was. So this element of design, this idea that there's a, uh, a better way of seeing something or looking at something, is it, is it the optics of the individual portraying the tree, or is it the... Is it the feeling that you get when you see that luscious tree in summer providing this glorious shade underneath for on a hot mm -hmm. summer's day? And it's the feeling that you, when you walk under that tree, that you feel the all-encompassing cooler air and the shade and the little dapples of light poking through. 
is is enough to capture the tree. Mm. And I and I think it's our personal association and encounters with these natural elements throughout our lives, our our individual lives that that are set onto the canvas. So so we we talk about sky, land, marsh, you know, all these different the lighting effect and and those those are elements of nature, uh, but they're also so intertwined with our memory systems so that as artists, we're also uh, designing, composing our piece, looking out and, and associating so many different feelings and uh, time periods and I don't believe, I think it's almost holographic, I don't believe that people um, have a sense that they're associating, let's say, a certain lighting effect at the green belt, let's say, mm-hmm. with some memory they had when they were five or six years old. But, but all of those things are constellated and put together while they're standing before their canvas and trying to, to paint uh, a painting um, of what they're claiming to be, you know, in front of them right at that very moment. Well, you two are very intellectual today. I was, I was going more for the basics. Could okay, be the elements coffee. of nature. Yeah, 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 that was that was powerful, bro. So I I was thinking more like the basics of you know when you go out in nature to be a landscape painter um, and you're looking at. The elements, you've got rocks, you've got marsh, you've got trees, you've got sky. How do you go about, uh, I mean, David, I've always loved your tree paintings. Um, even since we were, before we were married, I thought you were a great tree painter. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, but when, when you go out to paint, I know you're always saying, you know, get real with it, go out and paint something that's that's there. But how do you go out there and you've got to get these elements. I know landscape painters like to move things around if they're not quite in the right place. And for you, you've been doing it for so long, you probably do it second nature. But how do you teach somebody else to see the forms in those natural elements? How, how, do, you, how do you go about starting with a landscape? I mean... You go out, do you just stick your easel down and start painting? Or? Well, I, I think it's very difficult to teach art in the first place. And um, I, it's, it's a shame they don't have more art for young people, uh, even at a very early age, and make it mandatory. Uh, I think when I was in school, music was mandatory. I think painting and drawing, or especially mm-hmm. drawing, could be a means to be mandatory for people. So they'd appreciate and to help them better as the music lessons helped me to hear better, um, I think uh, we could help people to see better if they had more of these disciplines of, of drawing in schools. Mm. So teaching people to see is a very difficult thing because everybody's vision is different. Yeah. And it's very different. And then, as Connie was pointing out, um, everything's attached to the your, 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 your codex, your inner, your inner psyche 
DNA. And, <laughs> and dealings with what, you know. Mm -hmm. And when you look at a certain tree, if some, I, I mean, I've had experienced it where some students will not put a certain tree in their painting because some they don't have a positive <laughs> reaction to that tree. And I said, so the tree's not offensive. No, no, the tree is fine. I just don't want the tree there. So they don't want the tree in the painting because it must have some sort of meaning to yeah. them, you know. So I think there's a lot of what Connie said in when you're setting up to that you look at nature and there's, there's that feeling. But I also believe there's, there's also, I mean, I, I think I was a, a tree. You mentioned that I painted trees. I think it's because I saw them as not trees in the literal sense, mm -hmm. but more in the abstract sense. Mm -hmm. That it was an amazing piece of design. And that as soon as I attached that it was an oak tree or a maple tree mm -hmm. or a birch tree, identified the tree and formulated it, mm -hmm. my mind took over and no longer did my imagination play. And when it comes to nature, I mean, if the imagination is allowed to go a little wild, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's amazing how close I think you are to understanding the tree better or understanding mm -hmm. the object you're painting better if the imagination is playing within that within that realm because I think that's what it's giving us. I mean, that's it saying, hey, look at me. I'm, I got leaves over here. I got leaves over here. And I got a broken lamb here. What do you think? Is it, well, I don't want to paint that broken one, but maybe the broken one is the whole point. You yeah. know? Um, every tree is different, and it's not just because of the nature of the tree, the type of tree. It's where it's growing. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the lone cypress tree in California Mm -hmm. I think is um, is you have it's to iconic. you have to it's iconic and you have to you have to pay I think just to photograph <laughs> yes. it and reproduce it. I believe so. Um, oh my God! <laughs> so I mean, so certain trees have certain strong effects, mm -hmm. and I think they can create emotional feelings mm -hmm. uh, according to the shape yeah. of the tree. The tree in winter, the tree in spring, the tree in summer. Uh, well, all different. I remember painting with your dad when he was trying to teach me how to paint in his workshop. And he kept telling me, you can't paint a tree, you can only paint the impression of a tree. Right. Um, and so it's, and I think um, Emil Groupie used to say the same thing to his students. You know, you can't paint a boat. Stop thinking of it as a boat. Think of it as a shape. It's right. an element and you have to get that part of the design. As soon as you start thinking of it as a specific object, your brain starts trying to make it into... Right. That object. A, a good yeah. story for that was I, I had a brand new student in class, a nice, bright young man, and um, and it was his first day. I said, so one of the first things in a landscape that's important is the horizon line. Um, and if you want a big sky painting, now what do you think of the sky here today? And he looks up and he says, that's a beautiful sky. I said, so if you want to do a sky piece, maybe you put your horizon below center uh, so it's not cut in half. And then uh, in the landscape, or if you chose to do a landscape and not a sky piece, he says, well, I like the landscape too. There was a meandering stream going through the marshes. And he said, well, that's nice too. I said, well, just make up your mind whether you want a sky piece or a land piece. It's In other words, it had nothing to do with either one of the elements. Mm -hmm. It had everything to do with where he's going to put his horizon line. Mm -hmm. And so I went down, saw the students were on my way back. I looked over at him and I says, oh, couldn't make up your mind, huh? <laughs> it was the horizon line right in the middle. Um, so, so it's hard to teach. You learn from experience and practice, I think, more than, yeah. more than just... And good advice is always good, but, 
There's great books, and you could read the same book or, you know, Edgar Payne's book on composition a hundred times. I don't know if it's going to make you a better designer or a better, you know, composer, but you might have a thorough knowledge of Edgar Payne's theories of composition. Yeah. I think another thing that um, has struck me about the elements in nature is that there's so much, um, uh, like, excitement out there, you know, and and so when I look out the window and I'm looking out the window right now and I see all the the ways in which the light is hitting the leaves and and hitting some of the flowers and some of the flowers are in shade and some are lit up and and this sort of thing and that bouncing light all over the place can be done gesturally. Like we can put lots of different things around. Uh, when we think about, um, I know one time I was I was painting a field of flowers, and and David came up to me. He says, "You just put them down, you know, little dots everywhere, and you just put these dots around." And I kept thinking, "Oh no, I don't want to put too many dots there." <laughs> but but once I realized that you can just be have fun. And, and dots and dashes and all sorts of stuff can be thrown into your canvas. And then over time, while you're finishing it up, you're coming into refining the painting, you realize, oh, there are too many of them over here. There's, But you're with an oil painting, you're able to move things. So it's, it's so fluid, so plastic, you know, it's so able to be designed that I think that you're able to take some out, put some in. And, and so I think the upshot of this is to have to get in and put, put things into your piece. Mm-hmm. Don't be hesitant and, and kind of say, well, I don't see it quite like that and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that you two are going to be doing a workshop, a three-day workshop coming up. And um, I think it must be, let's see, it's called October Sky, so I'm guessing it's coming up next month, um, 10th to the 13th, I think it is. So if any of our listeners are interested in uh, taking a workshop with David and Connie, they have so much information to share, so many years of um, practicing outdoor painting. Uh, I think it's, uh, it would be very enjoyable and you'd learn a lot too. But it strikes me that when you're talking about October skies, um, that's a big subject, those big skies. But if colour and value can create form when you're doing elements of nature, clouds don't have a 3D form because they're sort of nebulous and atmospheric. How do you paint, how do you make form of something that's so airy? You can take that. <laughs> <laughs> At last, we've stumped the panel. <laughs> it is. Uh, it is. Clouds are one of the the few. But uh, in a, for a landscape painter, I think skies are the most um, one of the most important parts of a landscape. Mm. Uh, thinking of Fitzhugh Lane, one of the first great luminous painters in um, Fitzhenry Lane, yes. <laughs> um, and um, he did two-thirds of his canvas would be filled with sky and one-third land, mm-hmm. as if that was like a standard proportion for things in nature to see. And um, and I gave it a try, even though it was my style of painting. 
I gave it a try and tried this one-third to two-thirds, and it's very, very, very interesting. So mm. I think a landscape, uh, the sky is the most important part. Mm. So I think as long as your, your skies feel like a sky and they're mm. not doesn't feel like the clouds, as you pointed out, they're, they're nebulous. They feel soft. If I dropped an anvil or if a plane fell out of the sky, it would go right through the cloud and then crash on the earth. So, in other words, form, the form of the clouds is just, it's, it's got to feel soft and thing. But it has a lot of form. It has a light shade, a shadow side, and a half tone. And those are the three elements, how to, how to construct form. I think it's the values. If you make this, the clouds too white against the blue, it could cause it to be too sharp-edged. And I would imagine most clouds are sort of softer-edged. Mm -hmm. um, also, too, so the, if the values are exactly right for the shadow, the halftone, and the light, I think you'll find that the, um, the cloud will probably sit better in the sky. In the value, it's all values, and, uh, and I think too. Um, one trick that I've had with with painting clouds is to uh, put uh, red, yellow, blue into the white. Mm -hmm. I put touches of that in, and then I I put that into the sky. It's it softens the clouds. Mm -hmm. It makes them more real, more alive, and um, and you can vary that red, yellow, blue combination in the white um, to a greater or lesser extent. But, but I almost take it as an antidote, mm -hmm. you know, that it, it helps to, um, to make everything real, and then you work with it from there. Yeah. Once you have it in your sky, you then augment the pinkness or you augment mm -hmm. the, the um, purple hue, you know, depending on what you're seeing in front of you. Yeah, well, it must be that when the, there are those colors in the earth and therefore that must sort of reflect into the sky. So I think the, it does. And vice versa, would, yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's clouds. I mean, the sky, I mean, water is just clear and transparent, right? Yeah. You, pick a, you go to the ocean and you, you pick up a glass of water and hold it up. It's not blue, no. is it? So that's mm -hmm. the, the oceans are just big reflective pools of the, of the uh, sky, of the sky mm. usually, yeah. 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 Um, and and you could key, you could paint a painting um, off of the color combinations in the sky, uh, and and bounce them mm -hmm. on the earth. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I was watching uh, last night onto, uh, I, and I think September and October skies mm -hmm. are fabulous because everything has shifted in my backyard. I have a creek in my backyard, mm -hmm. and. Um, Yesterday evening, it was it was the most gorgeous, like um, baby blue, and then it had this pink around the edges, and it was fabulous. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the pine trees were reflected in, and they were looking purplish, and a purple that I've never seen before. So everything has shifted, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why too I think. Uh, Painting skies in the fall is is stupendous. Mm -hmm. It's um, yeah, I know. I've seen you two painting skies. I think you do a fabulous job. There's always such movement. You can feel the atmosphere uh, in them, and and I think that's the hardest thing for a landscape painter to get. And I think you have to be really painting out of doors to 
to get that effect there, not to mention all the insects that get stuck I think, in the paint. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and bite you. And, but but uh, I think it's true. I think you have to be outdoors. Um, it's almost like you, uh, again, you know, I was talking about the antidote of, of the red, yellow, blue, of uh, the full spectrum being in your color and in your clouds. Um, but but two, being outdoors, looking at the clouds moving, you may not capture that particular thing, you know, the cloud movement that you saw moments before, but you're capturing something and you're almost in your gesture of, uh, of the clouds on your canvas, you, you are gathering some element of that moment, yeah. I think. I think uh, yeah, I think that's great. I think if anybody wants to uh, to sign up and study uh, painting October skies with David and Connie, you can check out the website at davidpcurtis.com or lawinpaintings.com, mm-hmm. and that will give you all the information you need. So uh, probably don't just delay. A, I think probably one of the <laughs> things that we're going to do for the three day workshop is is in the morning they get, they have to do a spontaneous quick study of a sky of a sky just a sky um, but then in the afternoon they're going to compose a landscape to go with the sky and that piece they'll work on for all three days right. and in the mornings they're right. going to do a warm-up okay you know, a small little sketch just of the skies just so that we can really impress upon them uh, and there is there are techniques to do these just as uh, trees have techniques just as um just as painting water can have a technique, mm-hmm. um, most you know most of nature is is made up of patterns that are um, non-symmetrical. Mm-hmm. You know, non non uh, uh, all the leaves are not the same sh- shape and and don't all mm-hmm. point in the same direction. So we have to get used to this idea of the helter skelter of nature mm-hmm. and allow That's it good, to be yeah. rather than just. I mean, I know we have to be the constant gardener. Um, of of nature, but on the same token, there is a little health risk. A little, I mean, we have wild storms that blow up and uproot things and move boulders and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's all that's part of nature too. My mm-hmm. father loved to paint the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if it wasn't for, he always blamed it on the three. He had they, in fact, he had mm-hmm. three sons. Yeah, three boys, and we used to get that storm, peaceful sea. And then slowly but surely that <laughs> waves would get bigger and bigger and then there'd be a big storm because we'd be standing above the studio probably beating each other up. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. All right, so here's a thought then. Your father did get beautiful seascapes, enormous seascapes, and you can feel the power of those waves and the anatomy of it. Um, but he wasn't painting those big ones on location. So how did he manage to get... Um, such a an authentic look to a seascape of these waves coming in and pounding on these rocks while he's working in a studio. Well, he had uh, like most painters, I think that they they achieve their realm. I don't know if I've told this story, but I was talking to a friend, a senior senior, and he was one of my teachers, and and uh, he did still lifes, and I asked him. Um, because I became familiar with them, and it was wrong to become familiar, and say, why do you paint the same jugs and bottles all over again? And he looked at me and said, and he could have easily said, David, you, why do you paint the same tree over and over again? <laughs> and, uh, and he said the right answer, which was, I'm not painting jugs and bottles. I'm making a design. 
And that's what it, we're doing. And then that, that enlightened me to the fact that when I paint a tree, I'm interested in the design of the trees is in, unusual and fascinating, you know. And I think that's why I'm drawn to it is be, be, because I'm in more interested in the design than, than to make a tree so somebody will say, oh, look at that perfect apple tree or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't care whether it's an apple tree or a fruit tree or an oak tree. Mm-hmm. I'm making an interesting design. Yeah. And I know mm-hmm. that you talk about... Uh, when you go out to paint, Connor, you're always looking for that design element in in nature. So that although you're taking mm. the individual parts of of nature, you're still trying to make a good design with them. And it just right. it just occurred to me that uh, I know last week we were talking about a painting you'd done of a tanker that was coming in by the bridge, oh, right. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was so great. Uh, I just thought it was a very innovative painting it was, I thought it was a great design and I loved the color in it um, and yet at the time you mentioned using photos as a memory aid to working in the studio so if you were working up um, from a landscape if you start a landscape out of doors and you're not able to finish it out of doors and you just want to you know perhaps work in the studio and you might have a photo of that scene mm-hmm. uh, and you're wanting to work on a tree shape or something like that how easy is it to take what you see in that photograph and make the impression of a tree in your painting? Mm. Because it's you know if you if you're looking at it, it's three D. You can right. walk right around. But in a photograph, I know it as you say, you use it as a memory aid. Perhaps you're just looking at it for color or shape or something. Well, I think it. I, and also, you said the word memory aid. Um, I think that it is, um, it, it, it kind of, what photos do is that they help us recall what it was like when we were at the site okay. where we took the photo. Mm-hmm. So, so, for instance, the tanker is moving through. We, we were painting on that site something else. I'm, I took a photo of the tanker actually moving under the bridge, and... Um, and then I painted that piece in the studio, uh, but all the elements, and I think this is the, the, the trick that we have to constantly remember when we're painting um, and have a recollection because we have a photograph that's in front of us, um, is that, is that we're, we're, it's the feeling nature of, of being there. And, um, and then it's the design. It's the design element. So I may use certain things in the photograph. Photograph actually had several tugboats mm-hmm. next to the tanker. I did. I chose not to put those in. I I chose that, you know, purposefully because I didn't. I I felt mm-hmm. that the design um, it would clutter the design. Yeah. So so for instance, I'm not using. I'm using something. Then I obscured the front part of the boat with a tree you know all these things are are judgments that I'm making as an artist um it's not coming from the photograph Mm -hmm. and yet I'm using the photograph to recall how this 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 tanker was moving Mm -hmm. or what the tanker might have looked like the impression of the tanker so I think we can use them as as again as memory aids they aren't three-dimensional they're flat objects but they give us a trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it brings back that memory of being standing out there, of standing and it in reality. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and of what you wanted to complete. 
I think that's true also when Roger Curtis is doing big seascapes. He recalls mm-hmm. looking at those seascapes and watching these, these big storms happen. And then he's downstairs in the studio, mm-hmm. and he's painting up a storm, but he's painting with, painting the, the <laughs> with a recollection of that huge natural storm that happened before. And also, too, he was a, he was a big advocate of the... Um, of the principles of painting, the you know the, we talk about elements of nature, but the elements of painting, he was a big advocate yeah, for. And I remember asking him if I'm out painting a seascape, Dad, give me a, give me a pointer, and he said, "Water seeks the path of least resistance." Mm-hmm. In other words, I mean, I didn't fully comprehend all that he was saying in that phrase, but he really understood that, mm-hmm. and he was talking about you know ten foot waves smashing against the shoreline, creating then the aftermath of that crashing of the waves and uh, the sucking of that tide, that wave going yeah. back out and coming back in. He understood what the what water was doing in an elemental sense, but he knew how to enough to make it dramatic mm-hmm. and make it big, you know. Yeah. Even the anatomy of a wave one foot high versus a ten foot high wave, the anatomy is the same. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very good. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Can you believe we're out of time again? These uh, these times just fly by. Uh, however, before we go, I'd just like to ask you that if you've enjoyed this uh, this recording, that you might like to click subscribe. Uh, and then that way you'll get to know whenever we have a, a podcast out there, you'll, you'll get the uh, notification right away instead of having to hunt for us online. Uh, And don't forget, if you'd like to give us a five-star rating or write a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate that as well. Uh, And if you've enjoyed this, please join us again next week for another edition of the Sight and Insight podcast. Until then, thanks for listening and have a good week.